In 2016, Emily Bluebird left her mother's house and never returned. Not waiting on the authorities, the family searched and found her body. It was when they learned who had killed her that they were shocked as it was someone they trusted. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello and welcome to day eight of the 12 Days of Crime Lines. This case is a missing and murdered Indigenous woman case out of Pine Ridge. Pine Ridge is a reservation that has come up before in the case of Jamie Lee Wounded Arrow from last year's 12 Days of Crime Lines coverage. While I don't know how well Emily Bluebird, the subject of this week's episode, knew Jamie, they were friends on Facebook. And Emily's case started almost one year to the day before Jamie was murdered. The Pine Ridge Reservation, where this takes place, is over 3,400 square miles in South Dakota, making it one of the largest reservations in the United States. It was initially part of the Great Sioux Reservation, and it is home to the Oglala Lakota Nation. The reservation has a population around 20,000 people. According to Remember, an organization serving the Oglala and Lakota Nation, they have an 89% unemployment rate, largely due to a lack of job opportunities on the reservation and near the reservation. The poverty rate is 53.75%, as compared to the overall U.S. rate of 15.6%. Though Remember points out that other assessments not done by the U.S. government put the poverty rate at more like 80% of the population on the reservation. Hand in hand with poverty, we see issues with public health. The life expectancy on the Pine Ridge Reservation is the lowest in the country at just 66 years, which is 10 years less than the rest of South Dakota. In these episodes, I like to bring in history from the tribes, but I did that in the episode on Jamie Lee Wounded Arrow, and I don't want this to be a rerun. And while the history of Pine Ridge is so important, there are so many amazing things happening there right now in the present, and a lot of them are designed to meet the needs of the community that are largely a result of failed policies of the past. And one of those big issues is getting fresh foods to the reservation. Pine Ridge has a single grocery store and smaller convenience stores that only carry a small amount of fresh food. Many people have to drive upwards of 80 miles one way to Rapid City to go grocery shopping. Since they can't go often, they have to stock up on shelf-stable foods and processed meats that will keep in the refrigerator. Like I said, amazing things are happening on Pine Ridge where people are looking out for each other, and this is a little way we can help with that. Getting fresh food to the people on the reservation is a high priority, and for that reason and more, December's donation is going to remember the source of the stats I just rattled off. They have earned a score of 100 out of 100 on Charity Navigator. During the spring and summer, they deliver fresh produce and facilitate community gardens. And thanks to donations, they're building greenhouses so they can grow more food into the fall. For those not in the U.S. and not familiar with our geography, 
South Dakota is pretty far north, and their growing season is relatively short. That's not all Remember does. They also do a lot of construction work. They make bunk beds and wheelchair ramps and even outhouses. 5% of Pine Ridge does not have running water. So that's 2,000 people without indoor plumbing. Remember needs to buy not just lumber and nails and paint and varnish, but they also need to maintain and service their power tools, pay for the trucks that run across the reservation roads, many of which are very poorly maintained, and all of these expenses add up. In the winter, they also provide wood, propane, and utility assistance to keep families and elders warm all winter. If you are interested in providing funding to this charity or even just buy items off their Amazon wish list, I've left a link in the show notes. And with that, let's get into the case of Emily Bluebird. Emily was born in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in 1991 and raised on the Pine Ridge Reservation, where she and her family were enrolled members. She was one of 11 children having five brothers and five sisters, and that suited Emily fine as she loved kids and there were always siblings around and cousins nieces and nephews, and eventually her own two children. Emily's mother told the makers of the silent No More documentary that Emily was a bit of a peacemaker in the home. She would argue with her siblings the way all kids did, but she had an easier time than most just letting it roll off her back and not hold on to a grudge. She was very outgoing and she made friends easily. Emily's uncle once joked that he couldn't really go anywhere without bumping into her because she was everywhere with one group of friends or the other. During the holidays in 2015, 24-year-old Emily Bluebird was spending her time with her family and friends, and for the new year, she went to celebrate with some of these friends. At some point on January 2nd, 2016, she was over at her mother's house, playing with her nieces and nephews who were visiting during the winter break from school. It was later that night, around 10 p.m., when Emily told her mom, Lucille, that she was going to go out for the night. Lucille told her all the usual things, like make sure she dressed warmly enough because it was so cold, and to be careful. Emily said she'd be fine. She was just going to head to her sister Belle's house to spend the night. Lucille reminded her once again to stay warm, and off Emily went. Emily never went to her sister's house, but Lucille didn't know that. Emily was gone all night, but that's what Lucille was expecting to happen. She didn't think she would come home until later in the day. But she definitely expected Emily to come home at some point. The family who was visiting for the holidays was heading home to Pier on Sunday, so that the kids would be back in time to go to school on Monday. Emily specifically mentioned wanting to be there to see them off. When she didn't show, Lucille felt a little anxious. Emily came and went as she wanted. She was an adult after all, but Lucille wondered what had held her up because, like I said, she wanted to say goodbye to the kids. By Monday, January 4th, Lucille was genuinely worried since she hadn't heard from Emily. Emily was pretty good about at least shooting a text over about where she was or if she was going to be out longer than planned. 
It just so happened that that day, a police officer came by Lucille's house to serve Emily some legal papers. And Lucille told this officer she hadn't heard from Emily in a couple of days and that she was concerned. She told the officer about areas where Emily would normally hang out, and he said he'd check it out, but he never got back to Lucille on if he had found Emily or not. So Lucille kept trying to call around and see if anyone had seen Emily, but no one had. The family even called the local jails and hospitals to see if Emily was there, but she wasn't. The next day, on January 5th, Emily's Aunt Carla put out her first Facebook post announcing that Emily was missing and asked that if anyone saw her, to have her call home. On January 6th, with no word from Emily and no one coming forward to say that they saw her, the family officially reported her missing. Her Aunt Carla put out a much more urgent Facebook post, which ended up with something like 30,000 shares. She expressed concern specifically about a man Emily had been seeing at the time who she had reason to believe was abusive. Tips came in mostly to the family, and they would pass them on to investigators from both the Pine Ridge Police, but also the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the FBI. Because this was on a reservation, depending on how this case resolved, the federal government may have jurisdiction. Emily had a lot of friends, and they all lived all over the place, so tips came in from people who were sure she was staying with someone in Rapid City, or they saw her down in Rushville, Nebraska, or maybe she was out in Custer. The family passed on this information, but quickly got tired of hearing from the authorities that those tips were probably just rumors, because even if they were, weren't they worth checking up on? What else were they going to do? So the family started following up on these tips on their own. Emily's uncle, who had been sober for many years, stepped into bars for the first time in a long time to follow up on the information coming in. None of it panned out. Feeling like the authorities were not doing enough, the family took the search into their own hands. At one point, as they were putting up posters around town, they joked about what if they were doing all that and Emily just showed back up like nothing happened and wondered what all the fuss was about. They were half joking and half hoping that one day they'd all look back on this and laugh about the time they overreacted to Emily going out of town. But that hope was fading more and more as the days passed and stretched into weeks without word from Emily. On January 21st, after Emily had been gone for nearly three weeks, her father's cousin Julie sat at the computer one morning and saw a message from a 16-year-old. This girl, who I will call Sarah, was not someone Julie had met before, but Sarah mentioned some advocacy work Julie had been doing in the community for drug prevention, and that's how she found her. Sarah said she needed someone to talk to because she feared she was going to take her own life. Julie immediately sent Sarah her phone number, and Sarah called. She said that she was burdened with knowledge of what had happened to Emily Bluebird. 
She knew Emily was dead. She knew who had killed her. She knew where her body had been and then where it was later moved to. That was a lot of information, and Sarah was scared, terrified, really. She was afraid that what she knew would put her life in danger, and she was too scared to speak up. But on the other hand, she also couldn't live with what she knew, knowing what Emily's family was going through. She didn't know what she should do. After Julie reassured Sarah that she would do everything she could to protect her and her identity, Sarah told Julie that Emily's body was on the east side of the Pine Ridge Reservation, near a creek, and not far from the home of a man named Fred Brings Plenty Quiver. Fred was not the man Emily had been seeing who her aunt had mentioned in the previous Facebook post. He was engaged to another woman named Elizabeth Ann LeBeau, who went by her middle name. But Fred knew Emily and knew her family pretty much his entire life. In the time since Emily had been missing, Fred and Anne had been to Emily's sister's house to check on the family, and Anne even shared Carla's missing persons post on Facebook. After Julie spoke with Sarah, she called her own mother to pass on the information to Emily's aunt Carla. Julie then headed to the area where Sarah said Emily's body could be found. They couldn't immediately call the authorities because it was very early in the morning and the office didn't open until 8, but they called as soon as they could. And as the family arrived at the east side of the reservation to start searching, they noticed the BIA and FBI agents were walking along the creek, the sidewalk, and some were sitting in their cars. It seemed to be a cursory search at best. The optics of this was not great for the family who already felt like Emily's case wasn't getting the attention it deserved or needed. But it appears looking back like they may have been constrained waiting on a warrant. As the family gathered, they reached out to the local AIM members to help search. AIM is the American Indian Movement, and it's another thing we have covered on another episode. That was the Rose Downwind episode, if you want to listen to that. If you don't remember, the group was formed in 1968 to advocate for the interests of indigenous communities and to expose the issues facing Native Americans. Emily's uncle was the chairman of the grassroots chapter of AIM. In this case, the family needed their help searching, and they showed up that same day. They planned the search for 2.30 in the afternoon, and they didn't need to worry about a warrant since they were not attached to law enforcement and they were not acting at the direction of law enforcement. One of the searchers was Joe Hornback, a relative of Emily's who had tracking skills. He looked at the area and saw one path that appeared someone had recently gone through. And following that, within 15 minutes, he found the body of Emily Bluebird in a shallow grave. She was just 24 years old and left behind her two young children. 
The searchers from AIM then stood guard at the spot until the authorities came in, processed the scene, and removed Emily's body from the area. The official announcement that came from the Bureau of Indian Affairs about the discovery of Emily's remains was vague enough that it almost sounded like they were implying credit for having found her, though the family is quick to instead credit tracker Joe Hornback. The same day Emily's body was found, due to the other information from the tip from Sarah, 29-year-old Fred Quiver and 23-year-old Elizabeth Ann LeBeau were arrested by tribal police on charges of assault, criminal conspiracy, and obstruction of justice. Anything more than that would have to come from the federal agents because they had jurisdiction over serious crimes on the reservation, like murder. After Emily's autopsy was complete, they learned that she had suffered from blunt force trauma, but the cause of death was strangulation. This was absolutely not a case of an accidental or natural death that was covered up. This was murder. With the cause and manner of death identified, the case was presented to a federal grand jury. Among the evidence presented were Anne and Fred's confessions. Sort of confessions. They didn't give the same story, so we know one of them was lying. What they agreed on was... Fred, Anne, and Emily were all hanging out at the home Fred and Anne shared. Fred and Anne had done meth that evening, and this incident occurred on the night of January 2nd into the early morning hours of January 3rd. While hanging out, Emily got into an argument with one of them. And this is where their stories diverge. According to Anne, the argument was between Emily and Fred. Fred became enraged and grabbed a cord, wrapping it around Emily's neck and strangling her. But Emily was fighting back, so he yelled for Anne to hold her down. She grabbed Emily's hands and held her until she stopped moving. Fred's story was that it was Anne who was arguing with Emily. And it was Anne who grabbed a cord and used it to strangle Emily. Fred claimed that he had actually tried to intervene, but without success. They then both agreed that they brought Emily's body into the bathroom to wash it and then pour bleach on it. They were trying to get rid of any forensic evidence. Fred initially hid Emily's body under his house before moving it two times until he finally buried it in the shallow grave where the tracker found it. This information was in line with the tip that came in, further verifying how accurate that tip was. It's not clearly spelled out to me what other evidence was presented that made the grand jury believe Fred's story over Anne's, but it appears from the charges handed down that they did. On January 26th, Anne was charged with first-degree murder, and Fred was charged with accessory to first-degree murder. After the indictments, Emily's body was released for burial. The community held a vigil for not just Emily, but all missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Women gathered at the Sioux Funeral Home and escorted Emily's casket to the hall where her two-day wake would be held. $1,000 
They followed this with a candlelight vigil, and over 200 people participated that day. And with the confessions, the family hoped the case would be resolved sooner rather than later, allowing Emily to rest in peace while the family healed. From what I can tell reading between the lines a bit, it appears like there were two defense strategies being considered in Anne's case. One would be to place the blame on Fred, and the other would be to mitigate her guilt. They had looked at Fred's background, which included multiple previous accusations of abuse that included non-fatal strangulation. That would go a long way to building reasonable doubt over who really killed Emily. But Anne's lawyer had also asked for a psychiatric evaluation on Anne, specifically looking at her PTSD and how that may have made her vulnerable to Fred's coercive control. So that sounds like they were going more for mitigation than reasonable doubt. But we never found out which defense they would use at trial because about a year after the arrests, Anne took a plea deal. She agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder rather than first-degree. She signed a factual basis statement that matched her previous confession. She said she held Emily's hands down while Emily was being strangled by Fred. And it follows that if Anne did not commit first-degree murder, legally speaking, Fred couldn't be guilty of accessory to first-degree murder. So his charge was also dropped down to accessory to second-degree murder, and he pleaded guilty four days after Anne did. Fred also had to sign a factual basis statement. In his, it stated Anne had killed Emily and he had helped her try to get away with it after. The two defense attorneys then started preparing for sentencing. There was a pretty wide range of what Anne and Fred would be facing, and of course they wanted to mitigate this and get their clients the lowest sentences possible. Anne's attorney was looking over Fred's statement of fact and formulating his arguments when he realized something. In Fred's statement, he said Anne strangled Emily. In Anne's statement, she said Fred strangled Emily. The federal prosecutors had accepted and affirmed both of these conflicting statements of fact for the same crime. We know defendants or co-conspirators point fingers at each other all the time. That's not the issue. The issue was that the government was saying both statements were factual when that's impossible and they can't do that. This had the potential to be a much bigger issue down the road, so the attorney immediately brought it to the court's attention. Neither Anne nor Fred wanted to withdraw their pleas, but a judge ruled in July 2017 that they couldn't stand. Both statements cannot be true, and the federal prosecutors couldn't accept both. So the pleas were tossed out. Emily's family and friends thought this was wrapping up, and suddenly they were back at nearly square one. With no plea deal, either of the defendants could have decided to go to trial. But thankfully, they sat down and redid the plea deals. They both pleaded guilty to the same charges as before, and this time they came up with factual statements that matched. At the end of the day, though, we know the statements matched because the defendants wanted their pleas to go through. 
I don't think we'll ever really know what happened in that home when Emily was murdered. In May 2018, Fred's sentencing was held, and he got 15 years in federal prison. The federal system does not have parole. Instead, you serve 85% of your sentence behind bars, so Fred will have to serve nearly 13 years. Another downside to the federal system, from an inmate's point of view, is that there's no guarantee that you'll serve your time in your home state or anywhere near your family. You can be sent anywhere in the country, and Fred is currently housed in Tucson, Arizona. In July 2018, two months after Fred's sentencing, Anne was sentenced to 25 years in prison, which means a little more than 21 years after she serves her 85%. She is currently serving her time in Alabama. With the people who killed Emily behind bars and her case resolved in that way, her family turned to advocacy. Julie, the family member who had received the tip that cracked the case open, jumped into handling searches for other missing Indigenous women. She and others patrol the reservation, keeping an eye on things to protect those who are vulnerable. And she continues to take tips on cases that people are, for whatever reason, hesitant to call the police. There was one case Julie posted about on her social media where a teen girl was taken to California. They managed to get her back to Colorado where people were able to drive down there, pick her up, and get her home safely. Julie is going boots on the ground when it comes to protecting the community. Emily's mother, Lucille, and her aunt, Carla, participated in the documentary Silent No More, which is free to watch on YouTube and will be linked in my sources. They talked about how Lucille was worried while Emily was still missing that it wasn't being taken seriously because of their circumstances. Lucille lived in one of the homes on the reservation without running water. They lived on a very tight fixed income and she worried their poverty would make people not care about Emily. But thanks to family members and networking out from there, they had a huge response to the search for Emily, if not from the authorities, at least from their community. But you can't help but wonder and worry about what happens in cases where there isn't movement from the authorities, but there also isn't a family ready to mobilize and search for themselves. How many missing people slip through the cracks? Another concern this case raised was the use of methamphetamines. Would Anne LeBeau have lost her temper so violently that night if she hadn't been using meth? And that's another cause Emily's family has taken up, combating substance abuse on the reservation. This family has seen what led to Emily's murder from its root and followed it through to the legal conclusion. And they've identified points of intervention along the way, and that's what they're focusing on. Julie, Carla, Lucille, and so many others in Emily's family have had to accept that they couldn't save Emily. But that doesn't mean they can't save the next woman. <laughs> <laughs> 